0: We have been, for the last couple of weeks, talking about why we do what we do. Every now and then it's good to kind of take a break and just kind of step back and say, why is it that we do these certain things? Why are these things important to us? We talked about the fact that human beings, both individually, you and me, and collectively, as churches, as groups, we have a tendency to drift Over time, don't we? We have a tendency to allow outside influences and forces to, you know, influence our thinking. And we have a tendency to go away from what we were in the beginning, what we're supposed to be. Even first century churches needed restoration. As the apostles would write to churches and individuals to kind of encourage, and I like that word, don't you? Encourage, give courage to someone to do what they're supposed to do and be who they're supposed to be and even correct them when they're kind of going off track. And so we've been talking about the need for restoration, both individually and collectively, and why certain things are important to us and why we kind of have to push back against the culture sometimes that would take us in a different direction. We talked about the fact that we live in a culture that's very individualistic, right? We're a culture that, that is very about, very much about individualism and even consumerism. And if we're not careful, that affects our spirituality too, doesn't it? And we tend to think that it's just about me and God and my own personal individual relationship with Jesus and I just need Jesus and I don't need anybody else or anything else. I don't need a community or structure. But we talked about that doesn't fit the New Testament teaching, that Jesus and his apostles taught across the board that every disciple of Jesus, every Christian needs a church family and that every church family needs godly overseers, elders, shepherds, in part to keep us from going off track and to kind of bring us back when we do and to keep us following Jesus, that everybody, you and me, Every follower of Jesus needs a church family, and every church family needs godly overseers. And then last week, we talked about the fact that we live in a culture that's that's splintered, isn't it? We use the word polarized. We as human beings have had, forever, had a tendency to be polarized and put people in different groups and categories and say, you're that kind of a person and I'm this kind of a person. And we put walls and social boundaries between us, but how the point of Christianity, the whole point, the goal of Christianity is oneness, is unity, is bringing people together with God and with each other, that the, the mission of the church, our mission, both globally and locally, right here, our mission of McDermott Road is to partner with God in uniting humanity in Jesus That's what we're all about, is about uniting humanity in Jesus. That's because that's what God is all about. And so we talked about the importance of restoring that in a world full of polarization and isolation and splintering and division. We need to be about unity because God is about unity. Obviously, it goes again without saying that, that sometimes Christianity, very often Christianity is countercultural, isn't it? And, and Jesus calls us to live a life that people look at us and say, well, that's just weird. That doesn't make sense. Why do you do things that way? Why do you live that way? Why do you believe that? And so we have to guard against the, the temptation to kind of go along with the world and not go along with Jesus and how Jesus calls us to live, and what he calls us to believe. But it's also true that sometimes what the Bible actually teaches, and what we believe, and what we see to be true, because we've read it in the Bible, and we've listened to the words of Jesus and his apostles, sometimes that even runs counter to what a lot of Bible-believing people teach. And we have to examine everything that we do, and what we believe, and what we practice, and say, does this... Does this come, do I think this way and do I act this way and do we as a church do this because this is what Jesus taught and what his apostles taught or we just do this because that's what my preacher taught me growing up or that's what my parents taught me or that's what I've always believed or that's been my tradition. And th- this is important in a lot of different areas. There, there comes a time, sometimes, we have to look at somebody and say, listen, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I, I understand what you're saying, I get where you're coming from, but that doesn't really match up with what Jesus and His apostles taught. Sometimes we're afraid to do that, aren't we? I'm, I'm afraid to do that sometimes because I don't want to come across as unloving or condemning or judging. I don't want to come across as divisive. And certainly we need to be careful that we're loving and gentle. But it, it's not divisive or unloving to say, hey, You want to follow Jesus and I want to follow Jesus and we all want to have a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with each other, then let's look at what he actually said. And if I'm wrong about something, I need correction. And if your friend is wrong about something or your neighbor is wrong about something or your coworker is wrong about something and you have the ability and the opportunity to share the truth with them, then then I think we ought to be about that, don't you? And so this morning we're gonna, we're gonna talk about baptism and, and that's a subject, you know, that, that it's, it's been kind of presented in different ways over the centuries and there's a lot of people that think a lot of different things about that. Some of you will listen to this morning's lesson from Acts 2 and you say, Wes, I know all that, I believe all that, I was taught that my whole life. But I'm not telling you what Acts 2 says in order to convince some of you because you're already convinced. What I, And I'm not even telling you what Acts 2 says in order to remind you what it says, because you already know what it says. You don't need to be convinced, and you don't need to be reminded, but what you do need to do is go tell somebody else about it. Be, because it may be old news, but it's good news. And it's not just good news for you, it's good news for the world. And your neighbors, and your co-workers, and your family, they need to hear what the Bible teaches about this subject, because it's incredibly important. And some of you, on the other hand, may be kind of confused about what the Bible actually teaches on baptism, what, what Jesus said about it, what his apostles, and when I say apostles, I mean the people that Jesus sent out into the world to carry this message by his own strength and power that he gave them through the Spirit. What did they really teach about baptism? Because if you listen to different religious leaders and preachers all over the world, you'll hear all different kinds of things. And maybe some of us are confused about what does the Bible really teach. And I hope that by looking at what Peter says in Acts 2, we'll get some clarity on that. And then there are probably some in this group that that are going to disagree with me wholeheartedly. And you say, Wes, I know where you're going. I know what you're going to say. I know what you think about baptism. And you're wrong because my mom said this or my preacher said this or I believe this. And you're convinced that, that I'm wrong. And That's okay. You can be convinced that I'm wrong. In fact, you can argue with me afterwards. That's okay. But but what I, I hope that you'll do is I hope that you'll be open-minded enough to let Jesus and his apostles speak to your beliefs. And I hope that we'll all do that. I hope that whatever it is that we think or we believe, whatever it is that we're doing, that we're willing to be humble enough that when we open up Scripture and we see that Jesus and his followers correct us on something, I hope that we'll accept that correction and say, you know what? This is an important subject because it's important for our relationship with Jesus and it's important for our relationship with each other. So that's what I hope that we can accomplish this morning. So before we get into the text though, Acts, I wish we could just start at the beginning and read all the way to the end, but you'd miss lunch and you wouldn't like me for that. So, um, uh, you know, but, but let's, let's think about what's going on in Acts chapter two. Jesus, Jesus has been crucified and buried. But then he's been raised from the dead. And for 40 days, Jesus spends time with with believers. Hundreds of people see the resurrected Jesus. And then he ascends up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And, And his apostles are waiting and 50 days after, after Passover, the day, the feast of Pentecost, that's why it's 50 days after they were waiting in a house and they're waiting and they knew Jesus said something special was going to happen in Jerusalem and power was going to come and, and then they were going to go into all the world and make disciples. So they're just waiting. And waiting and waiting, and then in Acts chapter two, I mean, something amazing happens. There's this loud noise like wind, and there are, there's this fire that comes down and kind of splits apart into tongues of fire, and it rests on each one for a minute, and and. Something special is happening. In fact, it's reminiscent of the temple, isn't it? And the tabernacle and how the presence of God came to dwell in the tabernacle and came to dwell in the temple. And now these followers of Jesus, and and then it's going to spread through all the world, they are going to be the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God on the earth. Forget the mortar and the bricks and the stones and this building made with hands, the place where God dwelled now. Now God is going to dwell in his people. And they start to speak in other languages, languages they had never studied. They didn't grow up with these languages that represented other nations and groups and tribes and tongues. And all of these Jews that had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost from all different parts of the world because they had been dispersed during the exile, had been dispersed all over the world, and now God is bringing his people back together. And now these apostles, through the power of the spirit that's indwelling them, now they're preaching to this group of people and talking about how awesome God is and the things God has done. And the people are confused. How is, what is going on? What's happening here? And Peter hushes the crowd. He convinces them, you know, we're not drunk. I know you thought that, but we're not drunk. And, and then he, he starts to preach to them about Jesus and that this Jesus that had been crucified, and this Jesus that had been raised from the dead, this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. You know what that means? It means God's anointed king. And, and Peter is talking to devout Jews, people who had spent their entire life waiting for the Messiah. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they had told them, Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming, God's anointed king, the descendant of David is coming and he's going to rescue us and he's going to deliver us and he's going to save us and he's going to reign over us and his kingdom is going to be wonderful. And they, they anticipated and they waited and they prayed and they couldn't wait to hear the announcement that the king had come. And Peter said, he came and you killed him. Look with me in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now now what does he mean by that? He it's not a you singular. how am I supposed to say it? all y'all? It's a all y'all. It's a It's a plural you. What does he mean by that? That you have crucified the Messiah. Now, maybe some of the people there, there were thousands of people listening to this sermon, thousands of people. Maybe they were gathered in the temple court and Peter is preaching to them and he said, you, you as a group, you as Israel, you as Jerusalem, You've crucified the Messiah. Now, maybe some of them had been there at Passover when Jesus was crucified. Maybe some of them were personally shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But you as a city, you as a group, you as Israel, you as God's people, you did it again. You know, God, God kept sending you prophets and God kept sending you People to turn you around and warn you. God kept sending them to you over and over and over again, but you wouldn't listen to them and you rejected them and you stoned them and you killed them. And you thought as a generation, you thought, we're different. Oh man, we're different. If God sends us a prophet, we'll listen. If God sends us the Messiah, we'll bow our knee. And he did. And you crucified him. But... He's king. That you killing him and you turning him over to the hands of lawless men to nail him to a cross, it didn't stop God from raising him from the dead because he's alive and he reigns as both Lord and Christ. Now, I mean, that's a message that's both good and terrifying, isn't it? Good news, the Messiah has come. Good news, he reigns as king. Good news, he's the king of the universe. Bad news is... You killed him. You crucified him. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Why would you ask that? What shall we do? I mean, what he just said was terrifying, isn't it? You, you crucified God's son. You killed God's son. You murdered the Messiah, the one you were anticipating and waiting for, the one you longed for and prayed for. He came and you rejected him and crucified him and now he's risen from the dead and he's back and he reigns as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth. That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? You might think back and think, wow, remember what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah? a couple angels showed up in that in those horrible towns and they tried to mm, not do very nice things with those angels and god sent down fire and brimstone on those cities what's he going to do to jerusalem when we've crucified his son we rejected his messiah we nailed him to a cross and now, and now he's in charge. I mean, you've all heard stories, haven't you? You know, if somebody uh, maybe is a boss and they've got an employee and they kind of treat that employee like dirt, you know, and they kind of abuse. Well, something happens and that employee becomes the boss. And what does that guy think? He's like, oh man, I should have treated him a whole lot better, right? The one you crucified is now the king. And they must have thought, if this is true, what hope is there for any of us? How can, how can we ever be God's people again? We crucified His Messiah. How, can, how could we ever be in His mercy and grace again? How could we ever be His chosen people again? We, we we blew it. What should we do now? Now that the one we killed is in charge and reigning over heaven and earth, what do we do now? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the most surprising words in all the sermon. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Say, what? For the forgiveness of your sins? You, You mean to tell me that what God wants to do isn't rain down fire and brimstone from heaven? You're telling me that what God really wants to do, what Jesus wants to do with us, who sent Him to the cross, what He really wants to do isn't punish us, but to forgive us? Isn't that the message of the gospel? And church, listen, if, if that's what it's all about, if that's what Peter's sermon was all about and what every letter of Paul is all about and every missionary journey is all about is that Jesus longs to forgive the city who crucified him. If he longs to forgive them and he longs to pour out his spirit on them and make them his special, spirit-empowered, holy people, can you imagine what he wants to do with you and for you? Can you imagine, if he wanted to do that for rebellious Jerusalem, what he wants to do with Dallas, and what he wants to do with Plano, what he wants to do with Texas, and what he wants to do with the United States, and what he wants to do with the rest of the world, that he longs, he longs to forgive and pour out his spirit, even on those who crucified him. I don't know that anywhere in the text, I know we say things like all the time, well, my sin crucified him. I don't know if that's true, but sometimes we do that. We do that to make ourselves feel even more guilty and like God must really want to punish us. Don't you see what God really wants? It's not to say God doesn't punish. It's not to say that God won't punish those who are rebellious, but it is to say what God really wants, what he longs for, is to forgive. Whatever it is that you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you've been with, whatever you've said, whatever you thought, Jesus longs to forgive you and give you his spirit. There are two kinds of people in the world, just two. One, those Jesus has forgiven and those Jesus longs to forgive. That's it. And you're in one of those two categories. And here he tells these people that are waiting, what, what's, when's the, the guillotine gonna fall on us? Oh no. Tear our garments. How in the world are we ever going to be okay after this? What do we do now? He says, it's simple what you do now. You repent. You you stop. Stop rejecting the Messiah. Stop rejecting God. Stop kicking against the goad. Stop rebelling. And he's talking to, he's talking to pious Jews, right? I mean, he's not talking to people that are, you know, worshiping idols or anything like that, but he's, you rejected the Messiah. Stop. And follow him, and be be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and this is where it kind of might get a little bit controversial, right? You know, and you say, "Well, Wes, you know, I heard one time that what what he was saying was uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, because your sins are already washed away." Well, I, I know people say that, but that's not what the text says. That's not what it means. That little word "for" there—I don't want to get in the Greek, but it, it means towards something. In order to obtain something. In faith. He's not saying there's something magical in the water. He's not even saying that it's your own obedience that saves you. What he's saying is that the Jesus is longing to forgive you. And baptism is that moment where you surrender in faith. And you say, I believe these things. And I really believe that as wicked as I've been and the things that I've done. You want to forgive me and give me your spirit to live in me and to make me a part of your holy people. And he says, verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's for your children. That's not to say children like your babies are going to get baptized. He's saying for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next. And that's why we have to preach this same message today that they preach then because the promises are the same. Jesus longs to forgive you. What should I do? Repent. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in the name of John the Baptist and not in the name of Moses and not in the name of Abraham, but in the name of Jesus the crucified and risen Redeemer and Savior, sacrifice Savior and King of the world. In his name, by his authority, appealing to him in faith, he longs to forgive you. Now, Wes, are you you saying somebody can't be a Christian unless they're baptized? Read the New Testament. I'm not saying it. Jesus said in Mark 16, before he sent his apostles out, he said, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that when you're baptized into Jesus, that that's when you're united with him and you're delivered out of darkness and sin and death and into the light Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the reason you should be unified is because of your baptism. And he says in Colossians, he says that the reason you're, you're alive is because in your baptism, Jesus brought you to life. That's what the whole New Testament says. And when you go back even into the Old Testament, water. Water was always a part of this transition moment. You, do you remember when, when Peter in 1 Peter 3 talks about Noah he says, Noah lived on a different earth. Did you know that? It's kind of weird. Isn't it? It, Noah lived in a, in a different world, a world that passed away, and that he was delivered from the old world to the new world through water. See, anytime you go from the old to the new, in the Bible, there's always this transition of water. I mean, in, in the book of Exodus, when God's people were delivered out of slavery and into freedom, they had to pass through the... The water, right? That's how it always worked. When they passed out of the wilderness and into the promised land, into the land flowing with milk and honey, they crossed through the Jordan River, who was, was always water. And now, as the Messiah reigns, and he delivers all humanity, Jew and Gentile, no matter what you've done or where you've been or who you've done it with, no matter what you did to Jesus or anybody else, I want to forgive you and give you my spirit. It shouldn't be a surprise that we pass through the water out of slavery and into freedom, out of the wilderness and into the promised land, out of the old world and into the new. You keep reading with me in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. When many other words, he bore with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. See, his, his sermon was long too, just so you know. Uh, with, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Because not everybody in Jerusalem would believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Not everyone in Jerusalem would repent of rebelling against the Messiah. Not everyone in Jerusalem would be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Many would continue to reject. Many would continue to persecute Jesus and his people. Many would continue to kick against the goads. And Jerusalem would be sadly destroyed. The Romans would come a few decades after this and tear it down Brick by brick. And Jesus said that exact thing would happen. And Peter implores them, save yourself from this crooked generation. And church, that's that's our job as well, isn't it? To go into the world and say, Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants to forgive you. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he implores them, and it says in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I just want you to think for a second. There were thousands of people there. 3,000 people were baptized. That's kind of time-consuming, isn't it? And I want you to think about what happens today in our world when somebody preaches a religious sermon and they talk about Jesus and him dying. They might be asked, what, what, what shall we do? Is their answer the same as what we read in Scripture? Might they say, listen, here's what you need to do. Close your eyes and say a prayer with me. Raise your hand if you said that prayer and asked Jesus into your heart and invited Jesus into your heart. I, I appreciate the fact that there are people preaching Jesus, but we need to preach the same response that Peter preached. And... and that would have been, that would have been really easy, right? Thousands of people. It's really easy. Just tell everybody to say a prayer. That would have been easy. But, but instead they knew what needed to happen wasn't just that they needed to say a prayer because it wasn't them who needed to invite Jesus into their heart. It was Jesus who was inviting them into a better life. It's Jesus' invitation. And he was inviting them to pass through the water out of slavery and into freedom, out of sin and into forgiveness. And if that was the message then, then that needs to be the message now. And if people today are asking, what shall we do? Can God ever love me? Can God ever forgive me? Can I ever find a place amongst God's people? Then we preach the same gospel message now that Peter preached then. And that's what baptism is all about. Because baptism is Jesus' invitation saying to the world that he loves them and that he longs to forgive them and give them the Spirit. Church, your neighbors need to hear that, and your friends need to hear that, and your coworkers need to hear that, and the students you go to school with, they need to hear that. There's some that, that don't believe that God loves them or that could ever love them. And here, the people in the city that crucified the Messiah were told, Jesus wants to forgive you and give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what you need to do, repent and be baptized. That's what baptism is. That's why we keep preaching it. That's why, that's why the water is always there and it's always ready and we always keep it full. Why? Because baptism is Jesus' invitation. And it's saying to the world, not just to you and me, but to everybody, everybody in this town and everybody in this city and everybody in this state and everybody in this country and everybody in this world, Jesus loves you and he longs to forgive you. And he longs to give you the gift of his spirit. So church, whether you're convinced of that or not, if you are convinced of that, not only do you need to respond to that if you haven't, but but share it with somebody. Let the world know the good news that Jesus really does love them. And he really does want them to be a part of their family. It's not that we believe the water is magical, or that that even getting in the water is magical, or anything like that. It's we believe that the power is in the blood of Jesus, and we believe that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's it's that repenting of our sins and being baptized into Jesus is how we express that faith, and how we appeal to God. First Peter three twenty one for a clean conscience. So listen. Maybe you're convinced of that and maybe you were baptized a long time ago and you just need some encouragement to go, go tell somebody else that Jesus loves them and longs to forgive them. Or maybe you've been studying about this and trying to come to a conclusion about whether or not you've been baptized, whether or not you need to be baptized, whether or not Jesus loves you. And I hope that you're convinced. And I hope that you'll take this opportunity because we're ready if you are to put Jesus on in baptism. Or maybe you still totally disagree, and that's okay. Let's talk about that, okay? Let's talk about that, and let's keep reading, not just in Acts 2, but the whole book of Acts and the whole New Testament and what Jesus says in Matthew and in Mark about inviting you into the water, because he's inviting you into relationship, to pass out of the old world and into the new. But we are here for you. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. And certainly, if you've not been baptized and you're ready, now's your opportunity. After service, find somebody to talk to somebody if you don't respond now. But now we're going to stand and sing a song. Come forward if we can help you in any way.